The following is a special sponsored edition of the Big Four Bio Podcast. Daniel Levine, and this is the Big Four Bio Podcast. Efforts to respond to the growing need for innovative medicines to combat multi-drug-resistant bacterial infections have often centered on the search for novel antibiotics. Venatorix Pharmaceuticals, though, has taken a different tack. The company is developing combination therapies that marry a long-approved broad-spectrum antibiotic with a second compound designed to inhibit the mechanism resistant bacteria use to counter it. We spoke to Christopher Burns, founder, president, and CEO of Venatorix, about the need for new means of combating multi-drug-resistant microbes, the company's combination therapies and development, and its success at advancing its pipeline with non-dilutive funding. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Danny. We're going to talk about multi-drug-resistant bacteria Venatorix and its approach to combating these microbes. Perhaps we can begin with the problem itself. How big a concern is multi-drug resistant bacteria today? Well, it's a good question, Danny. We have, um, you know, there's a lot of different flavors of multi-drug resistant bacteria. And, and if we want to simplify it, just think of it as bacteria that will no longer respond to the antibiotics that we typically would have used to, to treat that infection. And, and typically there'll be different classes of antibiotics. And if, if the bacteria are able to resist multiple classes of antibiotics, we call it multi-drug resistant. And we, we tend to focus on uh, what's called the gram-negative bacteria. It's a set of bacteria that cause a lot of common infections like urinary tract infections, lung infections, abdominal infections, and the resistance can vary quite widely depending on which bacteria. It can be two, three, four, five percent. It can be 30 to 40 percent, depending on which bacteria is causing the infection. Without question, though, for some of the key bacteria like E. coli and Pseudomonas that cause infections that hit, you know, you, me, our grandparents, our kids, um, the resistance is steadily growing throughout the world. Uh, it tends to grow a little faster in some other regions in Asia, uh, India, Pakistan, uh, but slowly but surely, the rest of the world is catching up. Europe and the U.S. are all catching up. And so this is a, just a continuously growing problem. One of the things that makes this that much more concerning, and, and I'm sure is part of the problem, is the lack of effort in new antibiotics as Big Pharma has moved away from this area several years ago. Why is that, and, and how big a problem has a lack of innovation and development in this area contributed to the, the problem we have today? You, you know, I, 
maybe I can answer that in, in, in two parts. So why would, why would Big Pharma move away in the first place? Uh, I would say it's probably because back around the year 2000, 2005, there were some very important branded antibiotics and they were, you know, they were good revenue producers. They were, they were good investments for pharma. So they were, they were able to be profitable. These branded agents eventually became generic. And so of course, big pharma sort of steps aside, the generic companies uh, begin selling these products and these products, maybe from 2005 through 2015, maybe even 2020, they worked most of the time. You know, um, geez, they're cheap, they're generic. Um, we don't really need anything new, right? And, and, and what's happened is that resistance keeps growing so that finally now, perhaps, when we look at 2020 and beyond, we start to say, you know, this isn't enough anymore. These are multi-drug resistant. These are now resistant to those, those generic antibiotics. And so pharma moved away when it was no longer productive to be in the area economically. I believe they'll move back as they see that there is now a problem to be solved and we need innovations to solve it. So that's kind of part one of my answer. To your second question, is, has there been a lack of innovation and development? Um, you know, making a new drug to treat a bacteria has always historically been very difficult because bacteria are living organisms. They've been around for billions of years. They've learned how to fight off an attack from uh, just about any front. So when, when you can create something truly novel, that bacteria cannot fight off, you've, you've really achieved something. And so there has been a lot of work from smaller companies like us at Venatorix uh, in, in very innovative ways in order to combat bacteria. Um, it's not so much that there hasn't been innovation and development. It's slow, it's painful, it's difficult. There's been a lot of failures, but there have been successes I think, I think perhaps something we'll talk about a little bit later is how do we translate that innovation all the way into the marketplace so that it's a sustainable marketplace for the cost of that innovation? Venatorix is taking an interesting approach to combating this problem. It's developing combination therapies that are intended to deliver proven antibiotics in combination with an agent that inhibits the resistance mechanism what is beta-lactamase and what role does this play in antibiotic resistance? Yeah, so Danny, this, um, so without suffering people into the weeds, one of the ways that bacteria have managed to circumvent the known classes, and, I, and I'll feature the biggest class of antibiotics, which are the beta-lactams. Beta-lactams go all the way back to penicillin. And there are many, many very effective, very important drugs that are used around the world every day that are in the beta-lactam family of antibiotics. So how do the bacteria get around the beta-lactams? They have slowly learned how to create these enzymes 
And these enzymes are called beta-lactamases. And really the role of this, this enzyme class is to chew up beta-lactame antibiotics very efficiently. So you come in with your penicillin and the penicillin heads for the bacteria in order to kill it. And the bacteria produces this enzyme and it starts picking off all these beta-lactame drugs sort of en route before they can deliver the payload, right? Before they can kill the bacteria. So this, this families, families, plural, of enzymes, beta-lactamase enzymes, has been a key part of how gram-negative bacteria have learned how to become resistant. So what do we do? So we walk in and we say, look, we have to knock out these enzymes. The enzymes are knocking out the beta-lactams. We need to knock out the enzymes. Because if we can knock out the bacteria's enzymes, the bacteria, the sorry, the beta-lactam antibiotic can flow unfettered right into the bacteria and kill the bacteria. And both of our lead agents, we have an intravenous agent in phase three, we have an, an oral agent in phase one. They both perform that role. They both knock out beta-lactamase enzymes in unique ways. And, and by combining them with a beta-lactam antibiotic, like a penicillin or others, now that antibiotic can deliver its payload and can kill the bacteria. Well, let's talk about that lead asset, the, the IV therapy. How exactly does it work? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a combination of, of a known beta-lactam called cefepime, very powerful, very good, now generic. It's, uh, it's an excellent antibiotic, but as we mentioned a moment ago, the bacteria figured out how to chew that up before it can arrive at its target. So we invented tenibubactam, which is a frankly a novel class of inhibitor of these enzymes. And it acts in novel ways. It has a novel mechanism, it's novel chemistry. And by inventing that and combining it with cefepime, we create the cefepime tenibubactam combination. And once you put those two together, you have both, you know, you have both the, if you want the bomb, that, which is the cefepime, and you have the thing that knocks out the enzymes and lets the bomb through. And that's the tannibobactin. What indications are you pursuing and how big a market opportunity do they represent? So we will start out uh, pursuing complicated urinary tract infections. This is very, very common throughout the world. Um, there are uncomplicated urinary tract infections, which are typically treated out in the community. And then there are complicated urinary tract infections, which are more serious and often lead to hospitalization in order to get an IV therapy like the ones we're speaking of. The opportunity uh, is often driven by the rate of resistance. And so we see a big global opportunity. Uh, we, have a, we have a collaboration already with a company in China called Everest Medicines, uh, where we're working together to get this into the Chinese market. 
And then we hold the worldwide rights uh, outside of greater China within Venaturex. And we see that as an opportunity that will be uh, well over a billion dollars at peak sales, which we would expect to be seven or eight years after launch. Uh, were you in the clinic and, and what's the development path forward? Uh, we are in, for this lead agent, this intravenous agent, we are in phase three clinical trials, which is the final uh, trials in a large number of patients. We're in 16 countries, over 100 uh, hospitals around the world treating patients with our drug as we speak. And uh, we expect to finish that trial this year. We expect to submit for regulatory approval in each region beginning toward the end of next year. And we would like, we would love to be able to be approved throughout the world starting in 2023. You alluded earlier to a, an oral formulation. Does this have the same mechanism of action as the IV? It does, Danny. We have um, a combination now of an oral beta-lactam called septibutin and an oral enzyme inhibitor or beta-lactamase enzyme inhibitor called VNRX7145. Similar to the previous uh, inhibitor called tanivorbactam, this goes in and it inhibits these beta-lactamase enzymes, kind of mucks up their mechanism. And by doing that, it allows the oral cephalosporin to reach its target and to kill the bacteria. And what indications are you pursuing for that formulation and, and where is that in development? This will also be for complicated urinary tract infections to begin with. Um, and But we will be trying to treat people outside of the hospital. So if you think about uh, the way a patient is treated now, they're often treated uh, with a set of oral generic drugs when they're showing signs of complicated urinary tract infection. And there's, I think, over 8 million patients in the U.S. alone per year being treated with oral uh, drugs, antibiotics, for complicated urinary tract infection. These patients are becoming, there's, there's becoming more and more resistance within these patients and there are virtually no available oral therapies once you have failed the generic standard therapies. So their only choice is to, is to be sent to the hospital and to be admitted to the hospital for IV therapy. So of course you can see the opportunity there is to come forward with a new drug that treats all this resistant bacteria and provides the, 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 the physicians an opportunity to keep the patients out of the hospital. You know, patients like that, docs like that, the economics are much more favorable, the payers like that. Nobody wants patients to have to be admitted to the hospital when you could have treated them with an oral therapy. And so we see this as having a, an enormous opportunity uh, between the failure of the generic oral drugs and having to go into the hospital. Beyond these lead assets, you're also looking to develop a novel class of antibiotics that are non-beta-lactam molecules. What are these, and, and how do they work? So, so, so this is this is a fast talk about innovative, right? This is a fascinating new approach. So, if you, I mentioned that we that the beta-lactams 
go back to the discovery of penicillin, which has to be in the late 1920s. And so, so here you have this family, this super family of antibiotics that dates back almost 100 years. And it, and it hits a specific set of biological targets in the bacteria, and that's what causes it to basically muck up the bacteria and kill the bacteria. But no one has ever been able to bring a non-beta-lactam to the marketplace that hits those same targets. And, and it seems to us that's, you know, that's a problem that is solvable. And so we have been working for a number of years and with a, a I must say, very, very strong U.S. government support to develop a whole new class. So this would no longer be a combination play as our first two assets. This is a straight antibiotic single, single compound that would simply replace the beta-lactams. What's, what's pretty cool about this is that because they're not beta-lactams, all of these resistance enzymes that the bacteria have produced in order to circumvent the beta-lactams, they don't touch our, our molecules. And so you basically circumvent almost 70, 80 years worth of resistance. The bacteria have been working for 70 or 80 years to develop these enzymes to get around the beta-lactams. And then we could come in with a replacement that these enzymes can't do anything. They can't touch them. So the bacteria have to start from scratch. It's, it's, it's a very cool concept. In March, you expanded your pipeline with a, a candidate for hepatitis B virus for People not familiar with the condition, what is it? How does it manifest itself and progress? Yeah, so we, you know, we, we've crept outside of antibiotics now to antivirals. And, um, and to answer your question more specifically, hepatitis B, you know, it's an infection of the liver, just like hepatitis C, hepatitis A, and hepatitis D. It's a, it's a human blood-borne pathogen. And that's how you, it infects the liver. It's a huge problem worldwide. There's, I believe there's over 250 million people worldwide that are chronically infected with hepatitis B virus. And if you're chronically infected with that virus, it takes time, but regrettably, it leads to what's called progressive liver disease. And that can lead to fibrosis, cirrhosis, and hepatocellular cancer. And so it's one of these things, it's sort of an insidious, slow killer. Now, if you are infected with hepatitis B and you are getting toward that end stage, uh, cancer, fibrosis, uh, it's one of the leading causes for liver transplant. And, 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 and you can imagine it's not very easy to get a liver transplant. So I believe that there's about a million deaths per year globally from chronic hepatitis B infection. And how well controlled is the virus with existing therapies? And what's the long-term prognosis for patients with treatments today? So today, uh, the, the, the disease is managed. It's not cured. So there's no cure for hepatitis B. And so one of the ways it's managed with is with a class 
um, not to go too far into the weeds, but there's a class of drugs called nucleoside or nucleotide reverse transcriptase inhibitors. Sometimes we colloquially call them nukes. And, and these help manage disease because they slow the replication of the virus, meaning, you know, from cell to cell, you know, I, I'm the virus, I'm in a cell, I, inf I, I exit the cell and infect the cell next to me, right? So these, these um, nukes help to sort of repress this virus spread, and it helps to slow the progression of, of liver disease, um, tries to push out those, those more severe end stage elements like fibrosis and cirrhosis and hepatocellular um, um, cancer, but they're not curative and they generally require lifelong therapy once initiated. And so everyone is looking for an actual cure so that you eliminate the virus, which is sort of embedded in the liver cells and, and clear it out, just get it out of there. You're developing VNRX9945 to treat this. How does it work? So, so th think of it this way, you know, as a virus tries to leave a cell that it has infected and then go outside the cell and then enter another cell, it takes this sort of genetic material of itself and it, and it bundles it into a shell that they call a nucleocapsid. And this nucleocapsid, you know, it has to form you know, it basically has to form all of its own material. So it forms its own shell, its nucleocapsid. It fills it in with its genetic material. And then it, you know, it sort of exits the cell. And then with that, it recognizes another cell. And then it enters the next cell and it infects that cell. So that's kind of how it works. So 9945 goes in there and it, it, it messes up this nucleocapsid formation. And even when you can form the nucleocapsid, it messes up the ability to load in the genetic material. So you end up with these, sometimes you end up with these shells that are empty. And so they exit the cell and there's nothing in them. There's no virus in them. And so 9945 is, is a what they call a capsid or nucleocapsid assembly modulator. It, it, it's messing up the assembly. And, and by doing so, it, it together with the nukes that we spoke of a minute ago, it really knocks down the ability for the virus to spread within the liver. So while you're doing that, you're trying to now introduce a third and a fourth mechanism as a cocktail that will help go in and clean out those cells that are infected. But it doesn't do you much good to clean out a cell if, if over there other cells are being uh, infected anew. And so where we see 9945 fitting into the game is to keep virus replication basically undetectable. And so it's, it's a piece of a puzzle. It's not the final puzzle, but it's a key piece of the puzzle. Venatorix has proven adept at raising significant funding for its programs through non-dilutive means. 
what have you been able to do to date and, and how important a source of funding has this been? You know, you mentioned earlier that uh, Big Pharma has been sitting on the sidelines. Um, there's been some concern about the space, the antibiotic space. Um, the non-dilutive funding just means, you know, we don't necessarily have to go out to investors, to the stock market in order to bring in capital to fund our programs, right? So non-dilutive just means you haven't sold equity. The U.S. government, uh, other agencies such as the Wellcome Trust, with, which is a non-government organization in London, uh, a group called Guard P, which is another non-government organization in Geneva, they have all come together and helped really push specific companies and specific programs ahead. And without them, honestly, I'm not sure we could have done it. It's very capital intensive. And so without the support of groups like the NIH in the United States, the Department of Defense, uh, a group that's now in the news a lot called BARDA, have all supported the company through these projects. They often call this the push incentives. In other words, it's a way of pushing um, new ideas, new novel innovations. Uh, another one is called Carbex. You know, it's a way of pushing you toward approval. And, and these push incentives, these push funding uh, have been absolutely critical to getting us uh, from the discovery phase into the early development and into the later development. Uh, uh, without them, we, we wouldn't be here. In 2012, we saw the passage of the GAIN Act to incentivize the development of new antibiotics. Has this addressed the problem? Do you think additional actions needed? We do, Danny. I, you know, the GAIN Act was a very important act that I think um, is probably step one of, of either a two or three step dance. So the GAIN Act um, provided incentives by extending patent exclusivity or at least data exclusivity. Uh, it, it, it increased or accelerated uh, the ability of, of the FDA to review your materials, all very, very productive. Has it addressed the problem? No. Uh, has it helped? Yes. So the problem that everybody sees now is that we can innovate within the space. The push incentives that I mentioned earlier from BARDA, NIH, Welcome Trust, Guard P. All of these help push us to approval, but then you get to approval and it's very, very expensive to launch and commercialize an antibiotic, particularly in the hospital. You know, it's one hospital at a time to get on formulary, et cetera. And so you asked, do I think additional actions needed? And the answer is firmly yes. There's a number of government initiatives. I, th I think the government has has recognized, worldwide governments have recognized, they have to do something on the other side of approval or else all of these flowers wilt on approval. And so, and so there's a few things being, being looked at. One is called the Pasteur Act, uh, which is a, basically a government subscription. So the government sets aside an annual allocation 
and says, listen, I'm, I'm going to guarantee you this. Just make sure you make these drugs available into the chain. So some people call it the Netflix model. Uh, there are other metaphors we can use, but it's effectively a subscription model in exchange for a guaranteed allocation. And this is, this is a model that the UK has already piloting a couple of years ahead of us. So we think this is an enormously important element. And, and, and if we can get it over the political um, barriers, uh, would make it just a massive impact on, on antimicrobial resistance. There is another initiative called the Disarm Act, as well as things with, within uh, the administration, which try to get at the hospital level that says, hmm, you know, a hospital, even if they want to use a new effective antibiotic, there's so much economic disincentive that they're put into a conflict of interest because they're paid a bundled amount per patient. And if that bundled amount is relatively low and there's a new branded antibiotic, they're afraid they'll use the entire allocation for the antibiotic, whereas they all have other costs, of course, you have hospital costs, et cetera. And so, in, so there's a push to unbundle the, the cost of antibiotics from what they call the DRG code or the cost of the patient to the hospital. And that's another thing that's been, you know, sort of batted around in the legislature for a number of years. Uh, we haven't quite had the oomph to get one of these over the finish line, but it's getting awfully late in the day. And I think if COVID taught us anything, it's what happens when you have a pandemic and you don't have a solution ready. And so, so if you let these flowers wilt on approval, as has happened with several companies in our space in the last five years where they went bankrupt, um, you don't have anything left when you needed it. And so we're hoping that minimally the Pasteur Act passes this year or early next year. Christopher Burns, founder, president, and CEO of Venatorix. Chris, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Danny. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. The Big Four Bio podcast is brought to you by Big Four Bio, a leading aggregator service of four of the top life sciences centers in the world, Boston, San Diego, Philadelphia, and the San Francisco Bay Area. To subscribe for free to Big Four's daily newsletters, go to bigfourbio.com. This podcast is produced by the Levine Media Group for Big Four Bio. Our theme music is provided for the podcast by the Jonah Levine Collective and appears on the album Attention Deficit on Alpha Pup Records. 